Well, let me invite you uh, this morning to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50 for our time of study in the Word uh, this morning. As we continue in our study through the book of Genesis, we come this morning to Genesis chapter 50, uh, verse 1. My goal this morning is to cover verses 1 through 14. And the title of the message this morning is A Great Morning and Burial. Some of you uh, may have read or seen on television the tragic story about Carly McCord that took place a couple weeks ago. She was an up-and-coming sports reporter for a news station in Louisiana, and she was the daughter-in-law of Steve uh, Ensminger, who is the offensive coordinator of the LSU football team that will be playing in the NCAA championship game tomorrow night. In the day of the semifinal game between LSU and Ohio State two weeks ago, Carly McCord boarded a small plane in Louisiana to fly to this game in Atlanta. Tragically, the plane crashed shortly after takeoff, killing Carly and others who were on board the small plane. Her father-in-law, Steve Ensminger, heard the news of her death before the game and had to pull himself together to call the game of his life that evening. When Carly's husband heard the news of her death, he went into shock and had to be rushed to the hospital and be sedated. His pain was all the more keen because he had wanted to drive her to the game that day, but he was not able to get off work to do so, so she flew. To make matters more painful to him, she had tried to get a hold of him before she took off, but he did not have his phone with him at the moment, so he didn't get her call. Her last text to him were the words, I love you, words that he never read until it was too late to respond. It's the first thing I think about when I wake up. And the last thing I think about when I finally fall asleep, her husband said in an interview, every once in a while throughout the day, I find myself grabbing my phone and sending a text to her phone replying, I love you too. I don't know if that's crazy of me or not, but I'm praying she gets my message. And I wish there was a way that she could let me know that she has. Such is the devastating and the heartbreaking work of death. Death is ruthless. It does its work with clinical precision. It separates people from their health and from this world and from those we love. And it cuts like an an unforgiving knife into every life every family, every church, every institution. And it never, death never consults with us to see when we might find it a convenient time 
to die or to have a loved one die. Even when death is expected, it is still devastating in its impact on those who are left behind and who are left to grieve and to find a way forward without their loved one. Our passage today gives us the most detailed account of mourning over the death of a loved one that we find anywhere in the book of Genesis. We have seen burials in the book of Genesis before. We have seen weeping over the dead in Genesis before, but our passage today features something that is on a totally different level than anything that we have seen thus far. All in all, 14 verses are devoted to talking about how people responded to Jacob's death, covering a span of at least three months of mourning. This is a passage of unusually prolonged grief. It is full of pathos and and tears, which the narrator recounts for us here in a most vivid way. And in one sense, the writer of Genesis invites us to join Jacob's family as they grieve the death of Jacob, their loved one. In another sense, the writer of Genesis is providing all of us the opportunity to slow down for a moment and to take stock of the greater tragedy of death that catches up to every person and which is now caught up to Jacob. As Matt McLean reminded us last week in his message, death was not a part of God's original design for his creation. After God created the world in six days of creation, God looked upon his deathless world and declared it to be very good. In Genesis 2, we're told that In verse 16, that the Lord commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Well, when the serpent tempted Eve to eat of the forbidden tree, She responded by quoting God as saying in Genesis 3.3, you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. Well, the serpent responded immediately by saying in verse 4, you surely shall not die. Well, he lied. Eve and then Adam partook of that forbidden fruit. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 verse 12 that through Adam's sin entered the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men. That's why we die. After Adam partook, God spoke to Adam and said to him in Genesis 3 verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And Adam did not have to wait for his own death to experience the pangs of death. His heart was torn asunder when his oldest son, Cain, rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed Cain. 
or and killed him in Genesis 4, 8, making Adam father to a murdered son and father to a murderer. Adam and Eve had another son named Seth, through whom God would fulfill his promise to crush the head of the serpent. But Adam did not live to see the day when God would crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 5, we're told that all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. In Genesis 5, 8, we're told that all the days of Seth, who was Adam's son, were 912 years, and he died. Seth had a son named Enosh, but Genesis 5.11 tells us that all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Fortunately, Enosh had a son named Kenan, who outlived him, but Genesis 5 14 tells us that all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. As for Kenan's son, Mahalaleel, Genesis 5.17 tells us that all the days of Mahalaleel were 895 years, and he died. As for his son, Jared, Genesis 5.20 tells us that all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. The commentator Leupold is right when he says that there is something appalling about the dread finality of this phrase, and he died, that we see over and over again in Genesis 5. We do find a bright ray of hope in Jared's son, Enoch, who is the only man in the book of Genesis to escape death. We're told in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. In Hebrews eleven five, it's explained to us that Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, which gives us the first definite indication of immortality offered in Scripture. It's a ray of light a flash of light, as it were, a harbinger of a coming day when death will be defeated and men will no longer die. But the pattern of death resumes with Enoch's son. We're told in Genesis chapter 5, verse 27, that Enoch's son, Methuselah, lived 969 years and he died. Then regarding his son Lamech in Genesis 5.31, we're told that all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. But Lamech had a son named Noah, who lived on beyond Lamech's death. By this time, as you will recall, the wickedness of man was so great upon the earth that the Lord sends a great flood to cover the whole earth. And we're told about the result of the great flood in Genesis chapter 7. The text tells us in verse 22 that all in whose nostrils was the breath and the spirit of life died. And only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. 
Noah survived the flood because he was a righteous man who had found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But after the flood, we're told in Genesis 9.29 that all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Noah's descendants had their lifespans cut short by death as well. His son, Shem, lived 600 years before he died. His son died at the age of 438. His son, Shelah, died at the age of 433. Shelah's son, Eber, died at the age of 464. Eber's son, Reu, died at the age of 239. His son, Sarag, died at the age of 230. And his son, Nahor, died at the age of 148. Nahor had a son named Terah, who had three sons. But in Genesis chapter 11, verse 32, we're told that the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And the serpent had said, you surely shall not die. But Terah had a son named Abram before he died, and God made a covenant promise to Abram that he would bless him with many descendants, and that through him all the nations and families of the earth would be blessed. When Abraham was 99 years old, and his wife was 89, the Bible tells us that Abraham's body was as good as dead. But God reversed the aging process in Abraham and in Sarah's elderly bodies and gave them the capacity to have the son of promise when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. But eventually death prevailed in their bodies. 37 years later, we read in Genesis 23, 2, that Sarah died in the land of Canaan. 38 years later, in Genesis 25, 8, we're told that Abraham breathed his last and died. But his son Isaac lived on, and Isaac's son Jacob lived on. But eventually, in Genesis 35, 29, we're told that Isaac breathed his last and died. In Genesis 37, Joseph's brothers sell their brother Joseph into slavery, and they lead their father Jacob to believe that Joseph had been torn to pieces by a wild animal. Jacob becomes obsessed with his own death from that point forward, convinced that he will go to his grave, a grieving, broken man. 22 years later, Jacob is afraid to allow Benjamin to go up with his brothers to Egypt because he fears that it would kill him if something were to happen to his son, Benjamin. Jacob eventually lets Benjamin go. And when Jacob then hears the absolutely wonderful news that Joseph is actually still alive and reigning as Lord over the land of Egypt, Jacob says, I will go and see him before I die. He goes and he sees Joseph, and when he sees him, as you will recall, he says, now let me die in Genesis forty-six thirty. But God doesn't let Jacob die just yet. Jacob lived 17 more years in the land of Egypt, 
But in his 147th year, Jacob falls sick and has to summon all of his remaining strength just to sit up in bed and make Joseph promise to bury him in Canaan after he dies. In Genesis chapter 47, we are told that in verse 29, when the time for Israel or Jacob to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please do not bury me in Egypt, but when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And he, Jacob, said, Swear to me. So he, Joseph, swore to him. Jacob then speaks blessings upon all of his sons as they gather around his deathbed in Genesis chapter 49. But when Jacob is finished, in verse 29, we're told that he charged them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan. Telling not just Joseph, but all of his sons exactly where he wants to be buried. And in verse 33, we read that when Jacob finished charging his sons, He drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And now comes the time to mourn the death of this great patriarch, Jacob, the patriarch who lived an epic life of 147 amazing years. His life, guys, began back in Genesis 25 and ended in the last verse of Genesis 49. And we will see in our passage today how Joseph does a wonderful job of leading his family through their time of mourning and grieving their father's death. The way we'll break down our study of this passage today is we'll observe five developments in the story of how Joseph led in the morning and in the burial of his father in Canaan. The first of these developments is that he, Joseph, and the Egyptians mourn Jacob for 70 days. 70 days. Observe what happens as soon as Jacob breathes his last and dies. Verse 1 of Genesis 50 Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Notice that Joseph is touching his father's lifeless body, violating Egyptian taboo in doing so, making himself ritually unclean. You'll be interested to know that this is the only mention in all of the scripture of anyone falling upon a dead person's face and kissing them after death. But we see Joseph doing that here. He's overwhelmed with emotion and with sorrow, and he's throwing ritual concerns about uncleanness 
to the wind and pouring out his emotion upon the lifeless body of his father whom he loved. Observe what Joseph does next, beginning in verse 2. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, the Hebrew word is literally the healers. Physicians is a great translation of this. He commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now, 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. Embalming is not the norm in Scripture. In fact, there's only two people embalmed in all of Scripture, and that's Jacob here and Joseph a little bit later in this very chapter, and that's it. Embalming involved uh, more details than you probably would care to know. Uh, As the commentator Gordon Winham says, embalming was a long and complex process which could involve extracting the brain and the internal organs and then filling the spaces with spices soaking the body in niter or in salt, and finally wrapping it in linen bandages. Given the length of time that is taken to embalm Jacob's body, we have every reason to expect that Jacob's embalming was done according to the standard Egyptian practice at the time. The Egyptians had religious reasons for embalming their dead, but Joseph's concerns here are probably merely practical. He knows that there's going to be a significant length of time before his father is buried in the land of Canaan, hundreds of miles away. And so he wants his father's body preserved as well as possible for that journey. To his credit, he doesn't hand over the task of embalming to the professional mortuary priest of Egypt. He simply has his own physicians take care of the embalming of his father. As for mourning over Jacob, notice what the writer says at the end of verse 3. We read the words, and the Egyptians wept for him Seventy days. These 70 days, no doubt, included the 40 days of embalming with the additional 30 days beyond that. Seventy days of mourning, guys, was typically reserved for kings. So this period of mourning was clearly something that was established by a decree of Pharaoh who would have earmarked this period of time to honor Jacob and to call the Egyptian people to join with Joseph and his family in their grief. Thinking in modern-day terms, what Pharaoh is doing here would be like our president declaring all flags to fly at half-mast for 70 days and having Jacob's body lie in state in the U.S. Capitol Rotunda for 30 days after his embalming so that people can come and pay their respects. That's the kind of honor that Jacob is being shown here. But the text tells us even more than this. 
In verse 3, we're told that the Egyptians wept for him. Seventy days. That's astounding. And that had to have blessed Joseph and his family to witness this weeping from the Egyptians. In Romans 12, we're instructed to weep with those who weep. And we see the Egyptians literally doing that here, seizing the opportunity to join Joseph and his family in their sorrow as they grieve the passing of their father. Joseph has rescued them from famine, and now they're seeking to return the favor by joining him in his grief. They weep with him and his family for 70 days. It's a wonderful thing to witness, but there's a very important matter that needs to be tended to, and Joseph is not going to neglect it. Before Jacob died, as we have seen, Jacob had made Joseph swear to bury him in the land of Canaan, not in Egypt, and it's time now for Joseph to see to it that his father's wishes are honored. This leads us to the second development in this story of how Joseph led the mourning and the burial of his father in Canaan. Number two, he, Joseph, obtains permission from Pharaoh to bury his father in Canaan. Observe what happens in verse four. When the days of mourning for him were passed, so when the 70 days were completed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. You'll notice that Joseph is not speaking directly to Pharaoh here. In this passage, instead, he's speaking to members of Pharaoh's household, and he's asking them to communicate to Pharaoh on his behalf. This is probably because Joseph was in an unshaven and disheveled state from mourning, and someone in such a state could not appear before the Pharaoh. In his message to Pharaoh, Joseph wants four things communicated to Pharaoh. First is that his father made him swear that he would bury him in Canaan. Second, that there's a particular spot in Canaan that his father had already prepared to be buried in. Third, the third thing that Joseph communicates here is a plea to Pharaoh to let him go to Canaan and bury his father. And the fourth thing that he communicates is a promise to return to Egypt after he is done doing that. Well, how does Pharaoh respond? Look at verse 6. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. This is the earliest example of bereavement leave in the Bible. Pharaoh is literally giving Joseph time off work to tend to his father's burial and to do whatever grieving that he needs to do. And notice how Pharaoh words his permission. He says, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. 
It seems that the fact that Joseph is bound by oath is part of why Pharaoh grants his request to let Joseph leave and bury his father in Jacob, which is probably why Jacob, in his dying hour, made Joseph swear, knowing that it would help with him getting permission to go and do this. But Pharaoh clearly has great respect and love for Joseph and is no doubt thankful for how wonderfully Joseph has served him and the people of Egypt. It seems that he happily lets Joseph go to Canaan to bury his father. And he does even more than that. He literally pulls out all the stops and essentially orders Jacob to be buried with full state honors, which leads us to the third development in this story of how Joseph leads the mourning and burial of his father in Canaan. Number three, he, Joseph, leads a sizable company to Canaan to bury Jacob, his father. Observe what Joseph does in verses seven and eight, and notice the description of all who went with Joseph on this journey, traveling in this funeral procession. Verse seven, so Joseph went up to bury his father And with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, speaking of Pharaoh's household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph, and his brothers, and his father's household, speaking of the members of Jacob's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. Pharaoh is showing incredible honor to Joseph's father, providing Joseph with all the servants, all of his own servants, the elders of Pharaoh's own household. In other words, the principal people in his family and all the elders of the land of Egypt Imagine that. That's a huge sacrifice on Pharaoh's part. But the honor he shows must have been a genuine blessing to Joseph and bringing comfort to him in his own grief. I'm sure there were personal and governmental affairs that had to be put on hold while the elders of the land and many of Pharaoh's servants and the leading members of his household were out of the country with Joseph and his family. But Pharaoh is willing to make this sacrifice to honor and to bless Joseph and to honor his father. And I'm sure that this gesture from Pharaoh would have blessed Joseph tremendously. It's amazing the things that can bless when you're mourning. My granddad on my mother's side passed away in 2003 at the young age of 103. And I flew to Amarillo to be with the family for his funeral. And I'll never forget as we were driving from the funeral home to the gravesite, uh, being led by a police escort, we found ourselves driving past a public high school there in Amarillo, Texas, 
where there was a football field that was just off the interstate that our processional was traveling on. And there was a football practice going on on that football field at the time as we went driving by. And when they, the members of this team, saw us driving by, all the players stopped what they were doing and they took their helmets off. And they and their coaches all took a knee and put their hand over their heart and faced us as we drove by. We didn't know any of those players or coaches, and none of them knew us. But they blessed us in our grief with the respect and the honor that they showed. It was one of our standout memories. We were so blessed by just that moment that a member of our family called that public school several days later and thanked them for their meaningful gesture of respect. When Donna's dad passed away a couple years ago and we saw flowers from Cornerstone Congregation and from the women's ministry of Cornerstone there at the memorial home on the day of the funeral, it surprised us how much those flowers blessed us in our grief. We were 2,000 miles away from all of you, but it made it feel like you were there with us in our grief. Several years ago, my wife and I were visiting with a couple in our church who had experienced a miscarriage. We asked them what they had found most comforting to them in their time of grief. What was it that people did that they found most comforting And their answer surprised us. They said it was the texts that they received from people in the church that were a huge comfort to them. They didn't especially always want to have a lot of people around them during their time of grief, but the messages of love and prayer and support got through to them through texts and bless them immensely. You never know what it might be that blesses someone who is mourning or grieving, cards, letters, visits, flowers, a meal, a listening ear, a sympathetic heart. All of such things and more can prove very powerful in comforting someone and making them feel less alone in their grief. Having said that, there's nothing more powerful than just physically showing up. And that's what the principal people of Egypt do. The servants of Pharaoh's household do. Even to the point of taking what was probably about a month of their life at least. Taking a month out of their life and being willing to travel with Joseph and with his family hundreds of miles and back to bury their father. In addition to the Egyptian contingent that is traveling with Joseph, we learn that all of Joseph's household is traveling with him, along with all his brothers and all the other members of Jacob's larger household. The only people that are not going 
on this journey are the little ones or the littlest ones, along with the flocks and the herds that belong to all of Jacob's family, who were all left back in the land of Goshen. And they were left behind, commentators say, not just as a practical necessity, but also as an assurance to Pharaoh that they will be returning after all of the ceremonies were concluded. So there's quite a company that is traveling with Joseph to bury his father on this occasion, but that's not all. Look at verse 9. We're told that there also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. These chariots and horsemen would have been provided at Pharaoh's command for security reasons, providing Joseph and his family and the elders of Egypt with the military protection that they needed as they traveled to Canaan and back. And when you add it all up, you have Joseph's household and his brothers and their households, the leading citizens of Egypt and a Pharaoh's household, along with all the servants needed to tend to the needs of such a traveling band, along with a sizable military escort, it's no wonder that the writer tells us that it was a very great company that is traveling from Egypt to Canaan, being led by Joseph. So they all take off and they head toward Canaan with Jacob's body. And eventually they arrive at the outskirts of Canaan, at which point they pause in the procession. This brings us to the fourth development in this story of how Joseph leads his family in Jacob's mourning and burial. Number four, he, Joseph, and his fellow mourners make great lamentation at Atad. Observe what happens in verse 10. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he, Joseph, observed seven days mourning for his father. As for where they stopped to mourn, the narrator gives us a few details, telling us that it was at the threshing floor of Atad. An unused threshing floor would have provided a raised and open area that would serve nicely as a place to assemble for a memorial service, as it were. As for where Atad is, we're told that it is beyond the Jordan, which means that it was east of the Jordan River. The traditional site of Atad is just north of the Dead Sea on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And if this is truly where they stop to mourn for seven days, then it pretty much means that they traveled to Canaan by the same route that the Israelites will travel to Canaan hundreds of years later in the time of Moses. We honestly don't know why they took this more roundabout route rather than heading straight to Hebron where the cave of burial was. Uh, Perhaps some suggest this was a safer route for them to take. 
But whatever their reasons, once they stop here at the threshing floor of Atad, they mourn for seven days and were told that they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. If you had witnessed a hundred funerals in your lifetime and then witnessed this one, you would have concluded that this was the most intense wailing that you had ever seen at a funeral. This lamentation was not a quick thing either. We're told that Joseph used this particular spot to observe seven days mourning for his father. This would have involved sharing times and eulogies, sharing and cherishing memories and grieving the passing of Jacob. The lamentation of Joseph and his family and the Egyptians with them was so great that the Canaanites took notice from across the Jordan River. Look at verse 11. Now, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore, it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Abel Mizraim means mourning of Egypt, weeping of Egypt. Imagine that, witnessing an occasion of mourning and weeping of such intensity that you end up naming that location after the lamentation that you witnessed in that spot. Now, the likely reason they all stop here to do this Morning is because it was here that the Egyptians who are traveling with Joseph would have stopped and gone no further. It's almost as if this is where the final memorial service is being conducted and the gravesite ceremony will happen in Canaan with only family, with only Joseph and his brothers being present. So from here, Joseph and his brothers would carry Jacob's body across the Jordan into Canaan, leaving all of the Egyptians in this particular spot at Atad until they were to return. And this leads us to the final development in this story of how Joseph leads the mourning and burial of his father in Canaan. Number five, he and his brothers bury Jacob in the cave of Machpelah, in Canaan. Observe what is said in verse 12 and 13. Thus his, Jacob's sons, did for him as he had charged them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. Please note that the emphasis is now on what Jacob's sons do, which implies that it is Jacob's sons alone who cross the Jordan and who enter Canaan to bury their father. This would have happened in a place called Hebron, which would have been about 30 miles 
uh, southwest from where they would have crossed the Jordan. So it would have been a few days trip and back for them. When they reached the cave of Machpelah in Hebron, imagine what it would have been like for Joseph and for his brothers to enter this cave and to see the burial site of Abraham and of Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Leah, and then for them to bury their father in that cave next to his wife, Leah. It all had to have been deeply meaningful, awe-inspiring for them, serving as a fresh reminder to them of the legacy of faith that had been handed down to them, a legacy that they're no doubt feeling a fresh sense of obligation to be faithful to. In burying their father in the cave of Machpelah, we're told that they did as he had charged them. Jacob ordered his sons to bury him in Canaan in this very cave, and we're told here that they obeyed their father. They did exactly as he had instructed them. After they accomplished this burial, Joseph and his brothers would have headed back northeast for about 30 miles and then headed across the Jordan back to the threshing floor of Atad and met up with the contingent of people who were waiting for them there. And then we're told the following in verse 14. The text says, after he had buried his father, after Joseph had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt. He and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. As they departed on this trip back from the land of Canaan, at some point they would have certainly looked back and taken one final look at the promised land, never to see that land again in their lifetime, knowing that someday God is going to bring their descendants back to this land when the time is right. You get the feeling that Jacob knew all the benefits that his sons would experience in going on this journey. You get the sense that Jacob had done them all a great spiritual service in requiring them to go through this trouble of taking him to Canaan and burying him in this cave. I'm sure the impact of this journey will reverberate through the rest of their lives. Their trip to Canaan was in itself a dress rehearsal for the exodus that will come hundreds of years from now. There's a lot for us to learn and to think about from this passage that we've looked at today. Let me just review some of these things. In the first place, we're reminded throughout Genesis and in our passage today that death comes to everyone. And those who are living should take this reality to heart. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed to man once to die. And after this, the judgment we die because we have sinned and because the wages of sin is death. The serpent said to Eve, you surely shall not die. But he lied. 
And death has been the experience of virtually all people ever since the fall. And I would ask you this morning, are you ready to die? If you died today, would you die in faith as Jacob did, confessing your faith in Yeshua or Jesus for your salvation? Speaking of death, we're reminded in this story that death will not only come to us, but it's going to come to all those whom we love. And so we should use the opportunities we have now to love well before death comes to those whom we love. When it's too late to fall upon their face and kiss them. We're also reminded in our passage today of the appropriateness of weeping when confronted by death. In Genesis 23, 2, we're told that Sarah died in the land of Canaan and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. This is a man of faith at the peak of his faith. And he's weeping over the death of his wife, Sarah. In Genesis 35, 8, we're told that Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and she was buried below Bethel under the oak and it was named Alon Bakuth, which literally means oak of weeping. And in our passage today, we see Joseph weeping, the Egyptians weeping, and the funeral party lamenting with a very great lamentation and days being set aside for mourning. If you need a New Testament example, look at Mary and Martha weeping over the death of their brother Lazarus, even though they firmly believed that Lazarus would be raised in the last day. We see their weeping and their tears in John chapter 11. The question is, does Jesus see their weeping and rebuke them for weeping? No, in John eleven thirty three, we're told that when Jesus beheld those who were weeping the death of Lazarus, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. We're told in John eleven thirty five that Jesus wept. The shortest, but maybe one of the deepest verses in the Bible. Jesus wept. And he did this weeping, even knowing that in a few minutes, everyone is going to be out of their minds with joy because he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But before he does that miracle, he does something just as precious. He weeps with them in their sorrow. Jesus weeping on this occasion teaches us at least three things that all of us need to know. Number one, that it's good and wholesome to weep the loss of precious loved ones. Number two, that it's good to weep with those who are weeping the loss of precious loved ones. And number three, we learn that Jesus himself weeps with us when we weep and grieve the loss of precious loved ones through death which means that as Christians, we're never alone in our grief. Death is not something that we should make peace with, as some people say nowadays. Death is an enemy. 
And it is something to grieve. It's an intruder into the human condition. Jesus is going to destroy death in a future day. You can count on that. But until then, he weeps with us as we weep and mourn the death of those that we love. We also learn in our passage today the value of coming together for funerals and burials. We learn that such times are important. They provide opportunities for healing and for perspective. They give us the opportunity to physically show up and to grieve with those who are grieving and to mourn together with one another the loss of a loved one in a way that faces bravely the stark reality of death and helps us to take stock of how we should live our own lives in light of our own coming death. This is why Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2 says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. You know what he's saying there? It's better to go to a funeral than to a party. For death is the destiny of every man. And the living should take this to heart. He goes on to say that the heart of the wise is at a funeral. And the heart of fools is at a party. I don't think I've ever attended a funeral or officiated a funeral without walking away asking God to help me be a better man. And feeling wiser as a man. Asking God to help me to live my life in such a way that on my deathbed, I won't regret. That's the power of funerals. When rightly done, a funeral is a sacrament, a means of grace that blesses everyone involved. We're reminded in our passage today also, as we've already talked about, of the value of weeping with those who are weeping the loss of a loved one and joining them in their grief. We're being reminded here to seize the opportunities that are available to us to be a blessing to those that are grieving the death of someone precious to them, just like the Egyptians did for Joseph and his family. Sometimes people shy away from someone who is grieving the death of a loved one because they're thinking, I don't, I don't have some brilliant or wise thing to say in the face of so great a loss. I can't touch their grief. And so you shy away. But don't ever let yourself do that. You don't have to have magical words for someone who is grieving. Just reach out to them and tell them that you love them. Bring them a meal. Pick up the phone and call them and listen to them. Send them a text. Be with them. Weep with them as they weep. And don't just do that the day of the funeral, but do it a month after six months after, a year after. And don't underestimate how much the smallest gesture will mean to the person who's grieving. And remember, guys, you're never more eloquent than when you simply weep 
with someone who is weeping. There's incredible wisdom being communicated by you through your tears as you weep with someone who is weeping. Finally, as we close, let's cherish the fact that Jesus allowed himself to experience death. That's just a staggering thing. Jesus never committed any sin. He was absolutely perfect and righteous in every way, yet he died the most horrible death imaginable on a humiliating cross and on the receiving end of the righteous wrath of God. He died on the cross and bore the wrath of God on the cross so that through his shed blood, we could have atonement for our sins and receive the gift of eternal life through him. Jesus didn't simply avoid death like Enoch did. He experienced the ravages of death and was then buried. And three days later, he came forth again bodily from the grave, and he now lives forever to save to the uttermost those who repent of their sins and come to God through him. I don't know what you've been or who you've been believing in up to this point, but Jesus is the only one who is stronger than death. He's the only one who has taken on death and came forth from that encounter absolutely triumphant. And he's the only one that can give you eternal life. I don't know about you, but I'm with him. I want him to be my savior. To have a savior who delivers us from the ravages of death, we need a savior who's more powerful than death. Amen? And he is more powerful. Believe in him today and receive the gift of eternal life. Christ's own resurrection from the dead teaches us that death will not have the final word. Jesus is going to have the final word. On the day of resurrection, when he raises those who believe in him from the earth to live with him forever. Listen to me. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, Paul begins to taunt death here. O death, where's your victory Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray together. Lord, as we sang earlier in our service, we look forward to the day when we see your face. In that day, we're told in the book of Revelation that you will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there shall be no more death. 
nor sorrow, nor crying. All of such things will pass away in that day. But in the here and now, we grieve. We have people in this church family who are grieving the loss of precious loved ones and their grief is forever raw and keen. There are some in our church family, Lord, who are watching a loved one die slowly. And they know that sooner rather than later, death will come. And they're grieving even now in advance of the inevitable I pray, Lord, that you would minister your sweet comfort to every aching heart in this church family. That they would know in a palpable way that you you groan and you weep with them as they weep. I pray that you would help us to mirror your heart to each other, to come alongside of each other and to be agents of your sympathetic grace that when we do weep that there would be no one among us who ever weeps alone but they have you and then they have you manifesting your heart through many brothers and sisters help us to become good at weeping with those who weep And we so look forward to the day, Lord, when death is defeated, death is cast into the lake of fire, and it is no more. And you, Jesus, have the last word for all of eternity. And that word is life, eternal life in you. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to give of our offerings to you. At this point of our service, we ask that you would receive what we give in this offering and do much with all that is given for the glory of Jesus and for the spread of this good news of eternal life through him. And we give ourselves to you in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.